Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome uh, to the New Books uh, in Economics and Business History, um, a podcast channel on the New Books uh, Network. Uh, I'm Ghassan Moazin, uh, one of the hosts uh, of the channel. Um, and today we'll be talking uh, to Dr. Feixian Wang, uh, an associate professor at Indiana University Bloomington, um, about her recent book, uh, Pirates and Publishers, A Social History of Copyright in Modern China, uh, which came out with Princeton University Press uh, in 2019 and is a fascinating study um, of copyright and its practice uh, in China uh, from the 1890s uh, through to the uh, 1950s. Uh, so, Feixian, uh, welcome uh, to the New Books Network. Uh, hi, Ruxiang, and uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, the podcast series, and I'm happy to talk about my not-so-new uh, book. <laughs> um, I think uh, in so... academic terms, <laughs> still. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, um, and, and social history of copyright in modern China. Yeah. Um, I so to start off uh, as always, I was wondering whether you could um, tell us a bit about um, how you came to the study of modern China and, in particular, um, uh, the study of um, uh, copyright in the particular book that you ended up writing. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the reason why I uh, the the reason why I came into study modern Chinese history has to do with my uh, alma mater, the, the uh, National Zhengzhi University in Taiwan. Uh, so for those of you who don't know this university, it's to a certain extent, one would call it the uh, KMT Kuomintang Party School. It used to be a college training uh, party cadre and government officials. And so the history department uh, at the National Zhengzhi University, for that reason, uh, has been specialized in modern Chinese history, a period, of, period a, a, hist- a period of history that were considered particularly important and politically sensitive for 
the Kuomintang, uh, and also its uh, political region. And so that's why I joined the crowd and studied modern Chinese history. And at the beginning, I thought modern Chinese history was pretty boring because, like, in the post-authoritarian Taiwan, uh, like, when we think about modern Chinese history, it's always about, like, patriotic nationalist narrative. And But the more I studied it, and the more I realized that uh, the there, there, there is much more than what we learn in the textbook, and the, this period of time is a period of drastic transformations, wars, dislo- uh, displacement, and industrialization, etc., and etc. So it's actually a very fascinating and very interesting uh, period of time, and but because of the uh, because this is also a period of time that is politically sensitive. So as a result, it's actually an underdeveloped and understudied uh, 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 area. And so that's why I got fascinated uh, by a period of time that I at once thought pretty boring. <laughs> and, and as for like how I came to study copyright and this particular book uh, and, and, and end up writing this particular uh, book and also so like I did not plan to become a professional historian when I major when I decided to major history uh, as an undergrad and also then pursue my uh, master degree and then my uh, PhD degree at the beginning I, what I want to do is I want to become a writer or an editor because I grew up in a publishing house and uh, both of my parents are writers and editors and publishers. And so so for that reason, I have been always, I have been fascinated by like the book, its past, its present and its future from very early on. And so like I start, when I decide, when I, so, so I, I'm more, when I start, uh, when I decide to pursue uh, a PhD degree at Chicago, I decide that I would like to study the history of books. And originally what I'm interested in is the encounter of the late imperial Chinese book culture, which is based on its woodblock printing technology and the Western mode of knowledge production and mechanical uh, uh, information production in late 19th and early 20th century China. And but obviously this is a very big topic and it's very hard to pinpoint. And so I was trying to figure out a po- figure out possible angles to discuss this encounter and exchange. And so that's how I start to study copyright because usually people consider copyright as a modern conception uh, emerged exclusively in the Western uh, print culture. And the conventional wisdom among book historians and legal scholars in China uh, believe that China could not develop a strong sense of copyright or intellectual property alike because, uh, because the mode of production, because the the, because Chinese society view private property uh, and authorial genius uh, quite differently. And so I thought 
this may be a good angle for me to tackle this encounter and exchange. Uh, and so that's how I start to uh, embark this project. And as this time goes down, it grows into like something quite uh, unexpected, more complicated and uh, more intriguing than just simple like legal transplantation or adaptation of Western knowledge and technology. Uh, Western knowledge and technology, yes. Oh, yeah, fascinating. I think you already touched upon um, sort of this, uh, what is one, I think, of the main aspects and interesting aspects, of course, is that you have this um, sort of traditional culture of publishing in China that is then sort of comes together, I guess, at the late 19th century with uh, Western modes of uh, knowledge production and so on in your book. Um, I thought before we actually dive in uh, uh, into the first few chapters, um, uh, I thought you could talk, uh, and you've already touched upon that, but talk a bit about, um, I mean, you say uh, in the introduction, it's almost a myth, this sort of, if we think about China and we think about international intellectual property rights and copy, uh, and copyrights, um, that these two sort of don't really uh, go together. Um, and I think your book is, you know, very, I think, effectively debunks that in a sense. But I wonder whether you can, you can sort of talk a bit about uh, these sort of, I suppose, Western conceptions of our copyright and in China works or does not work, and um, how uh, how the book tries to to argue against that. I think this has to do with a few tendencies, or like uh, a few tendencies uh, that contemporary, uh, especially Western uh, jurists, legal scholars, uh, policymakers, and journalists. Uh, have when they think about China piracy in IPR regime. Uh, first of all, there is this tendency of projecting the current issues and concerns of Chinese about Chinese piracy back to its past and its its history. Uh, the idea, the logic behind that narrative is China. It's notorious for its IPR piracy today. That means China did not, China or the Chinese people, Chinese government have yet to fully appreciate, learn to appreciate this universal modern doctrine of IPR. And so that's why they pirate. And for that reason, it seems to be a, a, a nature to believe or assume that there was no such thing as a history of copyright in China because China, the Chinese people still yet to have copyright uh, today. This is one of the first myths. And secondly, uh, in order to explain or yeah, in order to explain why like, China or the Chinese still pirate today, then scholars come up with various uh come up with various uh, uh, theories to explain why. And oftentimes they point their finger to uh, the Chinese culture tradition or political culture and economic systems and uh, argue that the, uh, and, and emphasize the incompatibility of copyright with Chinese culture, which they believe is one that 
in favor of invitation, invitation over creativity, the collective or the communal interest over the individual rights. And so, and also some would further, some scholar would further argue that the Chinese government, no matter it's the imperial one uh, or the current ones, are more interested in censorship and information control rather than property protection. And some would also argue that uh, why this, this strong sense, a strong sense of private property protection uh, uh, is not, hasn't been developed uh, as it should. In China, it's because China, in before uh, mid twentieth century, uh, was yet to become like a free market economy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, what I want to debunk, or like what I want when I approach this uh, uh, issue, I'm less interested in I'm less interested in evaluating whether China has whether the Chinese has a sense of copyright or not. And I also, but what I'm more interested in is how they understood and actually practice this concept. And so so there are two things I think that set my approach apart from the other uh, the previous uh, scholarship. Uh, first of all, is that I see the concept of copyright or the doctrine of copyright not as an ahistorical and universal and unchanged doctrine, but rather I see it as a historically constructed and constantly evolving uh, 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 concept and system that is intertwined deeply with the local uh, economic system and uh, culture industry. And secondly, is that I focus more on the people who care about copyright rather than the state who, and their copyright legislation. And I noticed that my economic actors, like publishers and authors who care about copyright the most uh, than the rest of the society, they might not solely rely on the state and its law to settle their dispute, protect their interests. And so I shift my attention to the day-to-day underground practice and disputes between the authors and publishers. And as it turns out that there are a lot of things happen outside of the 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 the, the, the Outside of the state's core, uh, beyond beyond the the state's uh, copyright legislation, and that yeah. further shows uh, that Chinese authors and publishers they were active. They have been actively involved uh, the concept of copyright from pretty early on. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the uh, um, and that's sort of one um, of the sort of really interesting uh, parts of the book certainly is that you really go sort of on the ground and show uh, and show sort of how how it how copyright is actually practiced and then we'll get more into this of course uh, in a, in a bit about uh, you know the the booksellers guild and so on and how they actually try to to sort of establish their own uh, copyright uh, regime 
Um, but I thought to start off, um, we could actually, I mean, in the book, what is interesting, I think, is that you actually do not start, I mean, that's obviously a book about China, but you do not really start in China, you actually start in uh, Japan, because that is sort of the, you know, like so many other kind of Western concepts, um, copyright, in a sense, you know, as uh, as we understand it, it came came to, to China uh, through Japan. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about uh, or explain a bit why why do you first sort of talk about Japan and what what role Japan played in bringing copyright uh, to China um, and uh, how then copyright sort of through the via Japan was first first the idea of copyright was first sort of uh, 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 brought to China in that sense. Uh, yeah, so the reason why I start the, I open up the, uh, yeah, the first chapter, my half of the first chapter is about Japan. Uh, it's because I, a key concept or like of the book is this very uh, concept or this very phrase uh, in Chinese for copyright uh, function. And literally means the right to printing blocks. But like many of the uh, modern Chinese terms, this this was a term not coined by the Chinese as a translation of copyright, but a Chi- a Chinese long word uh, from Japanese kanji uh, characters. And so I figure like, I'd better trace how this term came into being. And so this brought me to... Uh, early Meiji Japan and Hukuzawa Yukiji's translation, Korea, and how he used this term and how he, by by introducing copyright and presenting it as a universal, modern, progressive, enlightenment uh, idea to actually justify his his own uh, economic profit generated by its translation uh, uh, operation and how he tried to uh, also protect his own interests and quick and 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 and, and urge the government to to punish those who reprint his book without authorization and so it was in this process but this is not just about a story of like an enlightenment figure introduce a Western concept to his fellow countrymen in order to like modernize the legal system. And then later on at the turn of the 20th century, uh, when China, uh, when Chinese intellectual also start to rapidly consume Western knowledge, then they uh, borrow all this translation from their uh, Japanese counterpart. It's more complicated. Uh, than that, the, and the hidden story in chapter one is also about how, in the process of translating this Europe, this Western uh, concept copyright into uh, first the Japanese, and then later uh, the Chinese, what the early practitioners and promoter of banquet or hanken or copyright in Japan and China, in order to make it work and in order to understand what this is actually this what this this concept actually uh, is they were heavily borrowed 
they were ha- they heavily borrowed and were heavily influenced by the pre-existing practices and norms and customs uh, that were uh, developed over the centuries in the imperial China and Tokugawa Japan uh, and their woodblock print printing culture. And so that's why my the Chinese and the Japanese a phrase for copyright has this character ban, which means printing block. And so that by introducing printing block to 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 translate uh, copyright, those early practitioners in Japan and China, uh, they were actually reshaping what uh, the nature of copyright in 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 East Asia, and that also has to do with this uh, what I call like the 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 a, a reverse journey uh, of book importation and knowledge uh, exchange between uh, China and Japan. Yeah, I think this sort of this point that you make that uh, you know Hanken in 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 Japanese and Banchuan in Chinese. I think this is especially for people that are not that familiar with the Chinese context is sort of an important point to make that when I mean, we talk about intellectual property rights, but in the Chinese context, the, the actual sort of physical uh, possession of the ban, like the, the printing block is obviously very much sort of um, at the center of things. And that's why you have, you know, the, the traditional sort of Tang ban uh, uh, idea that is then brought over to uh, to when it comes uh, to to um, a ban chuan, uh, or copyright, um, and I think that's quite. It seems to me that that's it's it's quite an important sort of characteristic if we look at the whole uh, how how copyright sort of played plays out in the in in the Chinese context. Uh, yes, and so that's also like it calls. To a certain extent, my confusion in 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 the first half of the in late nineteenth century, both in Japan and in China, this is the nature of copyright. If it this is a property, what kind of property is it, and who has who had the right to put proclaim the ownership of it? And as as we said, you rightfully uh, pointed it out that like the early modern concept of owning uh, the tangible physical like, printing block is very important uh, for us to understand the East Asian uh, uh, literary uh, property. And, and that sort of got blended into like, the East Asian modern understanding of copyright when Fukuzawa Yukichi first translated this uh, first translate copyright to Hanken and then later on when Leiting uh, publishers and intellectual pick up this term and use it in Chinese. They always have this idea back in their mind that this is somehow associated with the ownership of the tangible uh, printing blocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, we'll come back to that um, in a bit, I think. Um, but I wonder whether you could talk a bit about um, so when the so the idea Hanken Banchum and that uh, idea of of sort of the Western concept of copyright why Japan comes to China um, who are actually the main actors that we're talking about here that that become interested um, of course you have sort of as you you know 
talk about, you have sort of Western missionaries and so on that start that, that bring these ideas with them as well. But who are the Chinese actors that that first get interested in, um, you know, in in the, in this idea of copyright and, and the Western concept and bring that together with with traditional ideas of Chinese ideas of of of, of owning uh, the, the matter of printing and so on. Uh, yeah, I think there are there were three uh, major uh, groups of players in introducing and facilitating like copyright or banchuan in Latin China, and uh, to the first group would be the Chinese publishers, and especially the Chinese publishers in Shanghai. During this period of time, like late 19th century, like turn of the 20th century, the publishing industry or the book trade in China uh, faced a series of uh, structure challenges and transformation. Partly is caused by uh, educational reform uh, that make like, many of their inventory no longer commercially valuable. Uh, secondly, uh, this education reform and the call for uh, uh, reform and westernization also make a particular type of knowledge and new book highly uh, profitable. That's the books usually refer in Chinese as like xinxue or new learning books. And so it was, and on top of that, this is also this was also a period of time when multiple a uh, new mechanism and technology of textual reproduction were introduced and made uh, available and popularized in China, like letterpress, lithography, etc., and etc. And so as a result, like we have a robust but chaotic new publishing market in which like, people are not quite sure who published what. And a book can be reproduced very quickly in various uh, printing methods. And so it was in this context, uh, Chinese publishers start to worry not only about their own interests, their own commercial interests, but also the well-being of the whole book market. They feel that there was no order at all. And they and reprint unauthorized reprinting is such a common threat that no matter you are someone publishing old classic or if you are someone publishing translation work, you are uh, a threatened uh, in, in the same way. So that's how they feel they need to they need to do something to 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 maintain certain order and to protect their own interests. And copyright was the new weapon or the new concept that they identify will be useful. And along the same line, my authors, especially those who translate Western knowledge and those who publish trendy, uh, fashionable new learning titles, they were also people who we can nowadays call cultural entrepreneurs. Uh, they were educated in variety, but now they are seeking a career outside of the government. And so they have to make their own living. And for that reason, like they also want to secure their income, justify why the 
publishers should pay them a lump sum of money, and also they would care about and worry about unauthorized reprinting. They were the second group of people who uh, were pretty active in uh, introducing and promoting a bunch of. And the third group of people uh, would be the officials. Uh, they were keen in, or they, they show certain uh, level of interest in promoting or facilitating uh, copyright. Partly because for the sake of like reform and modernization, they believe there is a correlation between protecting intellectual property right and the advancement of technology and culture for the nation. And partly like they were interested in issuing copyright license or privilege uh, because they see this they see, they saw this as a, a very convenient uh, device uh, to help them control and regulate uh, this new body of knowledge from the West. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah wonderful and i think uh and and it's yeah these three groups are really sort of the the main actors i think that that really throughout the book we can sort of trace and it's interesting how their interests sort of yeah, converge at sometimes but then also often are uh, in conflict i think one point that you made um uh, can really not be stressed enough i think especially for people again that are not that familiar uh, with the Chinese context is, of course, that uh, it's the beginning of the 20th century up, you know, for centuries, uh, if you were an intellectual in China, you would most likely start, you know, study certain canonical texts, and then you would want to become an official. And that's basically how, how and there was, of course, a whole system attached to that, how you could make your living. And, and that sort of ended when um, the imperial examinations were uh, ended in the early 20th century. And now these people uh, then had to sort of uh, enter the market and basically somehow uh, make a living. And uh, as you say, you know, we, we can probably call them cultural entrepreneurs. That's certainly a term that has sort of come up in, in the literature. And I think one of the you know wonderful things that sort of come, come out of your book is that there are sort of as a reader, you certainly as of a China historian, one encounters a lot of intellectuals that one sort of knows, has known about, but we sort of learn now about a whole new aspect of, of they are basically themselves they're making a living, and that is sort of the, the economic side of things and how, you know, it's all well and good if you, you know, can translate interesting Western works or you can write clever texts, but 
of course, you have to uh, make a living. And I think that's really one one fascinating part. And I wonder whether we can probably talk a bit about that, because I think, um, I mean, uh, in the third chapter of your book, you obviously uh, talk about uh, Yem Fu and Han, how he as an author and translator tried to um, um, sort of, you know, get, get the idea of him owning copyright and him even getting royalties uh Get get that sort of introduced in, in China, and um, again, this is sort of a figure that you know any student of Chinese history certainly is very uh, very uh, familiar with. But certainly, uh, what you explain, sort of the economic struggles that that he goes through, is something um, um, new. Certainly, I think for a lot of people. So I wonder whether you can sort of talk about this general problem, but in particular Yam Fu and 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 what you how you discuss his case uh, in, in chapter three. Yeah, it, so this is, I was, I would say, like probably like one of the intervention I made that I'm pretty happy and 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 proud of, uh, is that I see those intellectuals and famous authors, important translators, not. Is like literary giants or like uh, forerunners of like Western ideas, uh, but rather than like actual normal economic actors who make economic decisions and who, while wanting, while they yes they want China to become a better place, but they also have to pay the rent, feed children, and buy clothes. <laughs> And so, so, so partly, I want to bring the human, sort of more hum, human aspect uh, of their life back to uh, the story and back to the discussion. And secondly, as as I want to uh, emphasize, uh, as I emphasize in the chapter on Yan Fu, and also later on uh, in other passages when I discuss other. Uh, well-established Chinese authors and intellectuals is that, like, especially for the case of Yan Fu, because he is someone, he is known as the intellectual who translate and introduce social Darwinism, Adam Smith, Zhang Mill, liberalism. And some would argue that, like, he... And and some many many scholars uh, before me they also they were aware of Yan Fu's dealing with copyright and etc. Like, but they mostly focus on a few uh, public letters and petitions he wrote to the uh, government, and they sort of make a correlation and connection between his political thought and his translation career and his promotion of copyright, and saying that he learned the progressive idea of copyright when he studied in Britain. And so he came back and want to trans- and introduce this and promote this uh, to, to his fellow countrymen. And, but I found those, I find such uh, argument made in the context of intellectual history uh, is not sufficient enough if we look at, if we really trace uh, their day-to-day dealing uh, with their publishers, with their readers, and with their families, and etc., we realize that they only introduce and promote and emphasize this concept in a particular setting, 
after they face tremendous economic pressure. And the same thing, we see the same thing uh, in the case of Hokuzawa Yukichi, which was also like labeled by like every person, every scholar studying modern China, modern Japanese history as like the the Franklin of 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 Japan. And so 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 this is the connection that I want to make uh, to sort of bridge economic history and my intellectual history and cultural history and show that their career, uh, the words, the pieces they produce may have a different context, may, 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 may need to be, be discussed and analyzed in a different context. And also like for, like, because it's also good for me to study those well-established uh, culture and literary figures. Because they are so important for people's, for intellectual historians and literary scholars. They are like the giants of modern Chinese culture and literature. So every little piece of their writing, their diary, their correspondence, any minor like writing they publish in newspapers have been carefully collected and compiled and edited. And so we have wonderful collection of their daily life, but it's just that for intellectual historians and culture uh, historians and literary scholars, they are more interested in like their intellectual development, and, but I'm more interested in the minute daily details that they, 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 they laugh in their diaries and correspondence, and that would help me to reconstruct them as economic. Uh, their life as economic actors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, that's, that's just so interesting that there are so many, as you say, intellectual giants that we are uh, sort of, of very well-known figures, certainly that we come across. And uh, uh, But I think from a very uh, sort of new perspective, that's certainly one of the, as you say, main interventions I think the book um, does make. So um, we sort of know now that, you know, the obviously authors and translators had an interest in, 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 uh, uh, a copyright regime of some sorts. But um, before we sort of go to the, the booksellers, um, I want to ask about the state. So obviously sort of these, uh, you know, the Banchu and that kind of terminology comes into China. So what does the late Qing state, sort of late 19th, early 20th century imperial state, and then the Republican successor oh, uh, in the 1920s, what, what does the state actually do in terms of um, copyright and, and, and uh yeah, a copyright regime. Yeah, and so this is, I think this is for my, uh, so the idea or like the proposal of China was in need of a copyright law, a modern copyright law. Uh, so gradually emerged at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, for, from both uh you have both foreign pressure and local advocates. Uh, and the Chinese, the Qing government, like the, 18, the 1898 reform and then later the new Qing, uh, 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 the Qing uh, new policy reform uh, in the last decade of the Qing empire. They, like in these two reforms, like IPR protection, as we now call it uh, today, uh, was mentioned 
and there were treaties signed uh, after in the aftermath of the Boxer Rebellion between Qing Empire and other uh, foreign countries regarding international copyright protection, which was, but it's not it's, it's not a a full protection, but it's also like a conditional protection. And since then, the Chinese publishers have been trying very hard to urge the Chinese government, the Qing government, to publish to issue its own copyright law. It didn't take it, it, but it took the Qing government much longer to like really materialize that law. Partly because the Qing government couldn't figure out whether copyright law is an affair for Ministry of Commerce or affair for Ministry of Education. And in the meantime, uh, to respond to as a response to the foreign and domestic urge for copyright protection, the Qing government issued individually authorized uh, copyright protection order to individual publishers and order uh, uh, and, and 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 titles. And later on, they also the Ministry of Education also. Uh, use copyright uh, license or uh, as a privilege as a way to uh, facilitate their content review uh, uh, project. And should that survive as a case-by-case mechanism is not fully institutionalized and the standard for my whether and how a book is whether or how a book deserves copyright protection is also quite unclear, and so that caused a lot of problem. But it's pretty uh, obvious that for the Qing government at the time, they care more. They see copyright more as a privilege, and to reward the publisher's contribution to a civilization rather than a protection of the, for the authors and publishers' uh, intellectual property. And it wasn't until 1910 uh, the Qing government issued its copyright law, but very quickly, 1911 revolution happened. The Qing government was overthrown. And in early 1910s, uh, the Qing law uh, was continuously being, was, was, uh, it was used by the the Republic region for a time being, and uh, and until the uh, the Beiyang government issues on copyright law. But like what happened early twentieth century, uh, the first half of early uh, the first half of the twentieth century, China was that there was various copyright law issued by various uh, Chinese state, and it enabled the Chinese publishers and authors to bring their pirates to court, but not in theory, but in reality, because the capacity and the resources uh, of those states were pretty limited. And so we see a lot of cases that like publishers brought lawsuit uh, and to try to sue their pirates and but like uh, the 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 the, the lawsuits of then end up in vain, and uh, so we could not say that uh, there was no my like, official like copyright 
formal copyright regime in China during this period of time. But we also have to be uh, fully aware the limitation uh, of that uh, formal copyright uh, regime. And but if we just read the 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 the, the causes of of those uh, Chinese copyright law, then they look and service pretty much like uh, other uh, copyright law in the world at that time. Yes, and I think that's uh, sort of very important to keep in mind that um, sort of throughout the first half of the 20th century, um, while there was in theory certainly legislation about copyrights, we we are dealing with um, rather weak um, uh, Chinese regimes that can't necessarily enforce them. They don't have the ability to enforce them. And that then sort of brings me um, uh, to my next question, and that is then uh, uh, also turning to sort of a, a main actor uh, that, that you uh, talk about in certainly the last three chapters um, of uh, the uh, book, and that's the uh, Shanghai Booksellers Guild. Um, and um, uh, sort of the ways that the guild, in the absence of a of an effective state, uh, tries to um, actually build up their own um, their, their own their own regime um, of uh, copyright enforcement. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit um, about that, how this um, particular organization came about, and how they um, actually uh, created their own uh, mechanism of of enforcing uh, copyrights. Yeah, sure. Uh, so. The Shanghai Booksellers Guild uh, came into being in 1905, but the history of this guild can be traced back to a much earlier, uh, early modern uh, guild uh, in Suzhou, which uh, was the which was an important uh, book trade center and cultural hub uh, of minting China. So what happened was that. Uh, in the second half of the 19th century, some of the uh, traditional booksellers uh, originally based in uh, other uh, cultural hub of Lower Yangtze Delta moved to the Treaty Port Shanghai and seeking for a more stable uh, environment and more opportunity. And they tried to revive this old guild uh, as like a, a traditional guild in uh, early in in late imperial China, serves a very important role for craftsmen and 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 traders and businessmen in various urban setting. Uh, those guilds serve as a, a mutual aid, provide mutual aid uh, to its members and their families, and uh, also provide social safety net. And they also uh, serve a. Uh, uh, it's like a crowdsourcing and uh, self-regulation uh, uh, institutions, and they also uh, oftentimes uh, acquire certain uh, quasi-legal status in terms of mediating and uh, uh, settling uh, disputes among its members. And so the the Chinese booksellers now in Shanghai wanted to uh, revive this guild, but they was not pretty. They was not. They were not. They was. They were not successful until the turn of the twentieth century, uh, when uh, unauthorized reprinting became an urgent issue for, uh, for, 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 for 
most of the members in in this in in the book trade. And so I would argue that it was the sense of urgency and the sense of like uncertainty prompt a new solidarities among the Chinese booksellers in Shanghai. And so they then reinvent this old guild and regear it and make it into literally a guild aiming to protect its members' copyright and setting like and 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 put and setting like punish pirates as the one of their main objectives. And so they start to uh, uh run their own copyright register and uh settle ownership disputes and on behalf of the this member they were punished pirates, uh destroy the pirate copies and uh a request for compensation, and uh, between nineteen o five and nineteen twenty, more or less, this is a local operation within Shanghai. But by time of late nineteen twenties and early nineteen thirties, they expand their operation to other parts of China and trying to uh, hang pirates. Uh, provincial pirates, and it was in this context in 1930s, then they also established their own private anti-piracy uh, detective units. Yeah, and that's, I think, um, I mean, that's the uh, the sixth chapter, and that's that's uh, really absolutely fascinating how you sort of trace um, uh, this particular detective unit, uh, I guess, uh, and um, how they sort of, uh, particularly in Beijing, try to enforce a copyright um, uh, uh, there. But I think um, sort of before we turn to that, um, uh, one thing to, again, note uh, in, in coming sort of back to comparing our current sort of Western-dominated ways of how we think about um, copyright and sort of the how this worked in the context of the Shanghai Booksellers Guild is sort of that for them, if you registered copy, copyright, that was still very much sort of tied to the actual physical way of, of, of printing and producing uh, and, and sort of the, 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 the shu di, like the, the actual sort of material that is used and machinery that is used to, to produce um, uh, to produce a particular book. And so when you actually went about registering copyright with, uh, uh, with the guild, that meant, I mean, that's sort of somewhat different than I think how we would think of, of, of copyright registration in, in the current context. So I wonder whether you could talk a bit more about, uh, about that. Uh, sure. Uh, so the copyright, they register, the booksellers register with the guild. As, as you, you, you mentioned, uh, is what they call Shudi or the master copy of books. Because this is a publisher and bookseller centered a copyright regime instead of an author centered copyright regime. So, what they care more about is how a book came to be as a physical object. And so, what they registered were like printing blocks letterpress set, stereotype, and later manuscript and uh, contract of, uh, with authors. And uh, they also, in their earlier in the earlier days of the regime, uh, of the guild's copyright regime, uh, they also have this idea that like, how, how a book can be registered as a unique entity. It's not depends on whether or not the content is unique. But rather, its physical its physical appearance and its printing method. So the same title can be registered 
by multiple publishers, as long as their physical appearance and their printing method were different. And then, so that's very that that's very different from our contemporary understanding uh, of copyright. Yeah, I think that's really sort of one of the differences that you bring out sort of very effectively uh, in the book. Um, but yeah, now as 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 we have already teased a bit out, um, I wanted to ask yeah about this uh, this particular unit, a detective unit, I one could call it, I guess, um, that sort of operated in the nineteen thirties. That this Shanghai Booksellers Guild operated and basically that sort of sent out people to to as you call it hunt pirates uh, not just in shanghai but uh, i mean you focus particularly in beijing but this really because of the importance of shanghai becomes a, a national enterprise uh, to to uh, um, to sort of uh, use this particular detective unit to uh, hunt pirates basically so i wonder whether you could um, talk a bit about this particular unit how it came into being and also what kind of means which are you know if you read the book um, is quite <laughs> You know, not, not, not sort of a, a, certainly operating in the gray zone. I would say, um, sort of the, the so, so whether you could also talk a bit about the ways in which they actually enforced uh, 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 copyright. Yes. Uh, so, as the like by the time of by the time of nineteen uh, by the time of late nineteen twenties and early twenty uh, early nineteen thirties, uh, the Shanghai publishers. They became the dominant force in uh, China's domestic uh, book trade. They corner like about sixty to seventy percent of the domestic market. So, for that reason, like pirates outside of Shanghai became an issue for them, especially now some of the uh, well more well established uh, publishers uh, set up branches. Over China and try to sell their books uh, across the nation, and but how to detect pirates? It's pretty. It's a. It's a. It's 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 a good question and very difficult uh, question. And so in a way, we can say that the guild is like a poor, like as a crowdsourcing, like. Uh, organization because if you are a, if you were an individual press and you want to like send your people travel around the country and find out who pirated your book that's like pretty pricey so the guild set up this uh, detective branch uh, to quick to 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 locate to find pirates uh, for uh, its for its member and uh, they mainly operate in northern China because that's where uh, most of the book piracies uh, were taken place in uh, in in nineteen in early nineteen thirties. And so this is a group of like ex. Uh, this is a group of former uh, policemen, uh, people with some law enforcement experience, and but also have personal connection with the uh, booksellers community. And what they did is that they would uh, regularly rate, uh, uh, they would regularly uh, uh, inspect the major marketplace and see whether or not people were selling suspicious copies. Uh, they also received uh, tips from, uh, from, from, from booksellers, and then they would follow the tips and try to locate and, un- 
and 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 reveal a certain uh, piracy operation. And in order to achieve that, and they sometimes, as as Rosan, you 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 mentioned, uh, they sometimes operate or oftentimes operate uh, in the gray zone uh, or of legality, between legality and illegality. They will set up trap. They will hire people to pretend to be a buyer and to lure the pirates to their warehouse so that they can locate where the uh, warehouses and try to use various tricks to to obtain evidence and etc. And uh, one important thing uh, is that because now they are operating outside of Shanghai, uh, dealing with people who may not necessarily subscribe to the same uh seller solidarity or like comply to like the peer pressure. So the provincial pirates oftentimes resist or they don't want to easily they didn't want to easily give in and pay compensation. And so the private detective branch then have to work closely uh, with the local policemen in order to make their raid uh, a legit action. Otherwise, like that's that you are you are you are you are you are, you are com- the, the, the guilt confiscation of pirates property would probably cause like even larger and bigger uh, legal trouble. And so that's how my like, in this particular setting, like the not very effective uh formal legal uh, formal copyright regime of the state and the very effective but like uh, a customary uh, local uh, copyright regime of the guild. So that, like that you this encounter and overlap and the 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 private detectives the guild hire then have to navigate between the two in order to figure out strategies and solutions uh, that are uh, best for the interests of uh, the guild and and, and its members. Yeah, it's yeah, and it's really. I mean, the, the different strategies that they um, employ, and yeah, the means that they that they. Employ, I mean, that's really it's, it's a it's a fascinating read. Uh, that particular chapter in your book, um, um, and and also quite exciting read the different case studies that you sort of bring forward there. Um, now, sort of moving out of the out of the nineteen thirties, out of the Republican period. I mean, I think another strength of of your book certainly is that you, of course, take us um, across the nineteen forty nine divide and into the uh, early People's Republic of China, and um, and that's sort of the in the last chapter uh, of the book. Um, you sort of yeah talk very much um, what happens to the guild and what happens to. Uh, copyright enforcement um, uh, after 1949, and I, so I wonder whether you could discuss that a bit. What happens to the guilds? What happens to these booksellers? And 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 what happens to copyright um, in general in China? So after 1949, uh, like for the the new socialist regime, right, handling copyright and privacy is pretty. Uh, it's a very interesting task uh, for them. They, on the one hand, wanted to gain support uh, from the, the, the authors and, and publishers. And, but on the, on the other hand, they were with the, 
the CCP and the PRC uh, regime were reluctant to embrace copyright protection. So that's why my the first PRC uh, copyright law, law uh, did not come into being until 1990. Uh, in in the 19 uh, in the early 1950s, there were constant debates of whether or not protecting copyright is protecting a bourgeoisie uh, a private private property uh, ownership, and so so what so so that 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 make PRC as a, a government without a, a formal copyright regulation, but they were still interested in regulating and controlling the information production. And so it was in this context they also were determined to reshape and reform the structure of Chinese publishing industry and cultural economy as a whole. And so the guild survived World War II and survived the Civil War and survived into 19... Uh, 1950s, but now like, as the new regime started to uh, nationalize and collectivize uh, the private sector, the guild gradually lost their agency and gradually lost uh, 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 their influences. And as a result, they, some of the poor, uh, as a result, they became more like a, a, playing a supporting role uh, uh, to in to facilitate the the state or the party's uh, larger agenda, and so for example, in nineteen fifties, they now use the same structure and use the same idea of guild regulating uh, copyright for its members and uh, punishing and mediating, uh, punish pirates and mediating uh, copyright disputes. And, but now like, it's in a different setting and very similar scenario, but but now a minor case could be framed as a, as a small episode to promote the PRC's uh, idea to nationalize and reorganize the publishing industry and so 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 the whole argument that became gradually uh, crystallized in 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 the case I studied I, I discussed uh, in in chapter seven is that what the sent what 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 the uh, uh, PRC uh, leaders in charge of the culture policy was thinking is that piracy was caused by Piracy was piracy came into being not because of the lack of copyright protection, but rather it's a result of brutal market competition. And so, in order to cure this capitalist mentality that was the reason why people pirate, what China needs to do is to remake the market, eliminate market competition, and in order to achieve that is to reorganize the publishing sector and to 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 nationalize uh, private uh, publishers and so 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 piracy was no longer just like a a, a matter of like a, 
property disputes or like uh, infringement of property right but rather like a sin of a larger uh, 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 systematic problem it was also in this context when the when they when the government gradually reformed and reorganized the Shanghai uh, private publishers and make them into various collective and uh, state-owned publishing enterprises. Also, gradually also lost uh, their uh, bargaining power and also lost their status as the creator uh, and thus exclusive owner of their works. Uh, they were now reinvented or re re. Restruct, uh, they, were, they were now reconsidered as uh, mental labor instead of authors. And the material reward they get was no longer attached to their uh, authentic and unique and individual creativity, but rather as sort of the, the payment for your, 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 your labor contribution. And so that's why by the that's why by late nineteen fifties, early nineteen sixties, like this phrase that I trace all the way, like from lating, like gradually uh, disappeared in 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 China's uh, public discussion, and it did not reemerged until nineteen uh, eighties and nineteen nineties. Yeah, and I think that's. Um, I mean, first of all, I think it's it's sort of interesting to see both what what certainly what changes in terms of, as you say, the rewards for authors and so on, but also that there is this kind of um, uh, institutional um, continuity, certainly. But um, uh, yeah, maybe just briefly, I think the 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 fact that 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 you sort of point out that it is in the early PRC that we have you know this idea of. Copyright sort of goes away. It's only then that it really goes away and then comes back. Um, I think in the you know as you say in the nineteen eighties only then. But but it is sort of you know that also goes against this sort of idea that this is a long term phenomenon, but rather that it was in the uh, early PRC um, that we have the uh, sort of gradually this this concept going uh, going away. Um, I thought uh, sort of uh, to close maybe we could. Um, Maybe I could ask you to um, sort of think a bit, think, think, sort of, or talk a bit more about um, if you look at your book as a whole and sort of how you look at um, the practice of, of 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 copyright in China and how sort of the whole idea um, uh, was brought together with sort of more traditional ideas about book publishing in the late nineteenth, probably late nineteenth century. Um, how you would sort of situate that? for people studying copyright in the West and um, generally to sort of a global study of copyright, how you would, would, would sort of situate the Chinese case and all of that and your study? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think the Chinese case is enumerating in two ways. Uh, first of all, like, as my book shows this is a non-Western society with its own printing and legal culture, and how it may encounter and make use of the copyright doctrine. And so, first of all, this is this 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 case contribute to the current like 
European American Center discussion of global copyright. And uh, secondly, uh, the picture I show in this book is like this is not a story of successful or unsuccessful legal transplantation. But rather, what we see is a cross-fertilization of Chinese and foreign ideas, institutions, and practice that make like, the Chinese publishers and authors able to, to a certain extent, protect their own interests and, uh, and, 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 and their, their, their books. And so I would argue that like, for a, in a broader con- context, this suggests that probably the internationalization of legal doctrine like copyright and other things was always realized locally in its local context and it's not just and it and this internationalization of local doctrine did not only happen in the parliament, in the law faculty, right, during treaty negotiation, but rather is intertwined with the local culture, economic structure, and local actors play a pivot role in materializing and facilitating this this process. And so it shows to a certain extent like how China negotiates modern, modern globalization and modernity. And the case I show here, of course, is particularly uh, about this legal doctrine, copyright, it's about this particular uh, uh, kind of knowledge, the Western knowledge and its commodification, but nevertheless, this is a case of how China negotiate uh, globalization and modernity. And I also think that my, my focus on my everyday life, the economic life, and also the non-state actors, uh, would probably be relevant to people who are also thinking about like a different kind of global history of copyright. So people who study like yeah, not only people who study like history of IPR in other societies, but also uh, people who are interested in legal transplantation and. Uh, globalization of law and knowledge and commerce. Yeah, no, thank you. And I think, um, yeah, certainly anyone that wants to study uh, IPR and copyright globally needs to uh, read your book. Um, but I think particularly the sort of the local, the everyday um, uh, and the local context, that comes, I think, the importance of that when we study copyright, not just in China, but generally, I think, and its internationalization, that I think comes out very strongly uh, and very effectively in the book. Now, um, I've already taken up uh, quite a bit of uh, your time, but before we um, uh, end, I-, I wanted to ask you, of course, now that the book is done, um, what what you're working on now? Um, we are, of course, all very interested in knowing uh, what your current project is, so I- maybe whether you can briefly uh, talk a bit about that. Uh, I'm currently working on huh, several projects uh, simultaneously uh, and they are all in various uh, preliminary stages I would say uh, one is one one is the sequel of this book uh, this uh, pirates and publishers mostly deal 
mostly it deals with domestic disputes. Uh, so I'm now working on the international disputes uh, regarding uh, copyright and piracy between Chinese publishers and Chinese governments and uh, foreign publishers, mostly American textbook publishers and British uh, textbook publishers. And sort of like a, uh, situating, again, China in the larger uh, 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 history of internationalization of copyright and also uh, the making of a global uh, knowledge hegemony uh, in late 19th, early 20th century. So this is, again, not just a, a, a legal history project, but it's also a, the, one, I want, what I want to uh, uh, reveal is, is how this idea of like a global like knowledge uh, order came into being uh, during this period of time. And uh, another project I've been working on is sort of quite different from my <laughs> quite different from the previous ones. Uh, I'm also working on a book. Uh, tentatively entitled uh, The Phantom of Empire, uh, sort of like you tracing uh, the popul- China's popular fantasy about its own imperial past, especially uh, the, uh, the hiding uh, period uh, from, and, and in, in, especially in the post-imperial setting, sort of unpack this very complex uh, uh, China's very complex attitude toward a glorious yet non hand uh, uh, imperial past. And so that's sort of like a more like popular culture uh, project analyzing soap opera, like martial art novels and, 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 and online like, fictions and things like that. And I'm also working uh, and a small uh, book about a uh, history of cookbooks uh, in, 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 in China and so my popular knowledge transmission and, 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 and politics of uh, domestic cooking. Yeah, well, I think uh, uh, all three projects look, uh, sound, sound uh, really absolutely fascinating. And I look, um, look, we, I think we all look forward to uh, learning more uh, about them. Um, but uh, yeah, so uh, all that's left for me is to thank you again for uh, taking the time to uh, to be on the podcast today and to the interview. And um, I enjoyed very much to uh, learn um, even more about your book and, and how you came to write it. Um, yeah, thank you very much and uh, take care. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.